Welcome to Rethinking Youth Ministry, where each week we hope to raise the bar for youth ministry by asking questions, interviewing thinkers, and having real and honest conversations about what it looks like to lead the next generation. I'm CJ, and this week I'm joined by Ashley Bohintz. Hey! Tom Shefshunas. Hey, everybody. Also known as Chef. And the one and only Mark Ostriker. Hello! Also known as Marco. We have lots of nicknames on yeah. this podcast. Feeling it's left great. out. <laughs> right. you, and, you and me both, Ashley. We'll work on it. <laughs> All right. You've got a- CJ. That's that's not a nickname. No. It's just my name. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how that works. <laughs> Ashley, your nickname is Ashley. Thank you. Uh, today on Rethinking Youth Ministry, we're going to talk about understanding teenage brains. Because let's face it, it's difficult to understand the teenage brain. And what's happening in a 13 or 14 or 15-year-old's mind is oftentimes confusing or mysterious or we just don't understand. And the better we become at understanding their brains and how they work and what their thought patterns are like, I think the better we can meet them and reach them right where they're at. Would you, you agree, know, CJ, I think it's the second most important thing any youth worker can do to improve their effectiveness in youth ministry. Wow. wow. Why do you say Absolutely. that? The, well, the first most important is to develop your own relationship with Jesus. That's Without that, exactly we're right. empty and we have nothing to give, right? So that, that our great youth ministry flows out of that. After that, literally the second most important thing you can do, more than learning new programming tricks, more than developing your skills, more than all kinds of other good things, the next most important thing is to understand Teenagers, they are unique. They are not the same as us who are adults, particularly if you work with junior hires. They're, they're a different beast. And if you don't understand what's going on in their brain, you will always struggle. Mm. And if you grow in your understanding of what's going on in their brain, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. It impacts how I talk to junior hires, either from up front or in a one-on-one conversation, or leading a small group. It impacts the topics that I'll choose to teach on. It impacts my programming choices, impacts my interactions with their parents. It's the whole thing. Hmm. So this is really critical stuff. Well, you kind of already answered my first question, which was, why is it? Why is understanding the teenage brain so important? So I'll just jump into you know, uh, the next more obvious question, I guess, which is, so what problems kind of emerge if we have an improper or that we have the wrong understanding of the teenage brain. And I just want to say, as you get going, I'm going to poke back Marco and be kind of the layman here who, you know, as we get into some of the brain stuff and that kind of a thing, like we have Ashley who, who is an educator. We have chef who is an educator. We have Marco, the researcher here. So as you get into this and as you're researcher. a researcher, right? Hey, yo. Yeah. hey now. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll, I'll be the layman here and poke if I don't yeah. understand something. Okay. Poke away. Yeah. Jeff, were you going to say something? Well, I was just say as an educator, I'd agree. Like when I figured out the middle school brain, well, I went home and relaxed a little bit about mm-hmm. what I was, yeah, what I was doing as a middle right. school teacher back in the day. But I mean, it just changes the way you say things, approach things, and it's, it's just so important. So I, I, I think you're right. Yeah. So to your question, so yeah, CJ, what, pro- what about the, not the understanding? Yeah just causes us to make all kinds of wrong assumptions about why teenagers act the way they do and causes us to uh, wrongly assume that they're understanding things in the same way that we're understanding things. Um, The other problem, uh, besides a lack of understanding being a problem, uh, the other problem is looking at the teenage brain with the wrong set of assumptions the other way that people can really get this wrong is the lens or the assumptions they bring to even this study of teenage brains or any developmental issues. And it's, I think it's best framed in this giant, monumental, critically important question. Are you ready for it? It's a big deal. Here we go. Do you see teenagers as a problem to be solved or as a wonder to behold? Mm, wow. Do you see them as a problem to be solved or wonder to behold? This is the question. I would suggest that somewhere roughly 90% of adults in America see teenagers, maybe it's 95% even, see teenagers as a problem to be solved. Because they have to live with them? Because they have to live with them, but even if they don't. I mean, like, the vast majority of Americans thinks teenage... It's, 
If you listen to the podcast we did just before Christmas, when we talked about Stanley Hall mm-hmm. and his portrayal of teenagers as uh, a time of storm and stress with all these negative descriptors, that's how people view teenagers. They're, uh, they're broken. They're mm-hmm. incapable. They're a mess. And here's the crazy thing. Even so many of our churches that should be the most hopeful places on earth see teenagers as a dysfunctional we have to fix abnormality. Them. Exactly. That something's wrong during this. If we can just hold on until <laughs> right. that they finally emerge at some point uh, as real humans. I had a senior pastor that I worked for once who talked about, I was a junior high pastor, and he talked about our junior hires as pre-people. And oh, man, I just, I almost heart. quit. It made wow. me so angry. Yeah. And he, oh, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. And I'm like, yeah, behind your joke is a truth and it's offensive, right? Yeah. But that's, that's the way people view teenagers in many of our churches. If we can keep the teenagers occupied and interested just long enough that can emerge as real people, uh, then maybe there's a hope for something to happen, right? So, that's the problem to be solved perspective that our justice system works on that. Most of our mm-hmm. educational system works on that. I'm not dissing teachers, praise God for teachers, but most of our educational system works on a problem to be solved perspective. And the majority of youth ministries and churches do also. But what if, what if we saw teenagers as a wonder to behold, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, how God sees them, right? And then when we're looking at things like new discoveries about brains, that how you approach this information makes all the difference in the world. The researchers that are studying brains right now and are looking at teenage brains and going, wow, we just discovered this new thing. The researchers are come to it from a neutral perspective, but how it's reported is almost always done in a problem to be solved perspective. Hmm. Those same findings can be reported in a wonder to behold. We're going to get to that because yeah, yeah. it's, it really does make a difference. So, Chef Ashley, you know, what, what, as ministry leaders, sounds like you're on a cooking show, and your name is <laughs> Chef Ashley. <laughs> Ashley Chef. We'll just we'll start we'll start <laughs> Chef Ashley. Yeah, yes. you're right. Well, I'll, Ashley, I'll start using I'm your name. I'm definitely not a chef. So, <laughs> uh, why do you two, as educators, uh, coming from the system that Marco was just talking about, moving into ministry and leaders in ministry? Why do you think it's important to understand the teenage brain and what problems have you seen emerge when maybe you or maybe even your small group leaders have had that their problems to be fixed mindset instead of wonders to behold? Actually, the most common um, response I get when I tell people I work with middle school students or people who work with middle school students is, is oh, I'm so sorry. And <laughs> yeah. like, really, right, that yeah. is their response. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a middle school small group leader, and I get that. They're like, oh, oh man. Yeah. That's, or that, that must be a calling. Or it's that, <laughs> that's, that's or it's that patronizing, oh, God bless you. I is, know. Marco, it is that. It's like, wow, God bless you for working with those devil children. I don't yeah. know. Right. But. And I, I, what I've learned is it's really because people don't understand who you're working with. Mm-hmm. And, and so often parents come to you the same way and they're like, what, I don't know what's happening with my middle schooler right now. Like, I don't know what happened to them. They weren't, they didn't used to act this way. Now they are. And I think some of the most beneficial conversations when, when I do talk with parents is helping them understand the developmental changes that are happening in their kid's brain and their kid's body and their kid's emotions. And then all of a sudden the parent views their kid totally different. Because you can extend grace totally different when you understand what somebody's going through. And Marco, something I was thinking about when you were talking is it's it's kind of similar to like our approach on mission trips, right? When you go into a place uh, uh, that you don't necessarily understand very well and you see issues that are happening and you, without figuring out what's really going on in their minds and in their brains and in their culture, you say, oh, it looks like they need us to build this or they need this. And you go do that as a team, but then what you find is the need was really different than what you thought it was because you didn't understand their culture. You didn't mm-hmm. understand what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And so I think that has like severe implications for poverty relief efforts, just like it has severe implications for how we minister to middle school students mm-hmm. or high school students. I'd agree with everything you guys said, but as, you know, to pr- as a practitioner, as a pastor, um, I had two major adults that I was talking to all the time and it was parents and small group leaders. And, um, I used to love to talk about this. I I can't believe the terms you use because I would use the term. They're not problems to be solved, 
but people to be loved through a God-ordained process, and that something amazing is happening, um, and that you can appreciate it, though it's confusing during the time, What what's happening is really a good thing. Yeah. I mean, some of those things I would say all the time, I was like, this is a good thing because, or they can live in your basement the rest of their life, you know, <laughs> like, we want them, you know, to move yeah. out someday as much as we, and, and this process is important, and so you should really um, appreciate it. Same with small group leaders, though. It was like, you know, when a small group leader comes out and says, I mean, I could only get those sixth grade boys to focus for about eight minutes. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> a that's pretty up amazing. top, bro. I mean, yeah. it doesn't get me much better hand. than that. Let me shake your hand. That's incredible. And, yeah. it, and people's shoulders just drop and they relax yeah. because they feel like they can't solve this problem named Jimmy, you know, or, right. or, you know, Jenny or whatever it is. But I just think it's, um, I just think it's important that we're constantly talking about this like you just described mm. it, a wonder yeah. to behold a um a process that's just important and what if this isn't what if it's you know what if the fall never happened and adolescence was still here you know what i mean it's not this broken thing it's yeah god's process in a lot of ways yeah. i'm sure there's lots of broken things in the midst of it or a great opportunity for those broken things but and i think that's what i love so much about what we do at orange um specifically in the phase project um and if you don't know about that we can put some stuff in the show notes for a link for it or whatever but um, the whole idea of the phase project is every phase a child goes through, you can leverage distinct opportunities to have uh, influence in that area. And it, it's just a phase. You don't want to miss it. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of takes... As opposed to, I can't wait, they're out of it. Exactly, because yeah, right, right. people use it as, in a negative way. A lot of times, yeah, it's, it's just, just a, a phase. It's just a phase. Mm-hmm. But here, it's, it's just mm-hmm. a phase. Don't miss it, because there are certain things that you can do in this phase to influence how they see themselves, how they see God, and how they see the people around them. Um, and I, it's what I love also about the curriculum that we we write, and I'm totally biased in saying this, but there are a lot of curriculums that are theologically sound, a lot of curriculums that are biblically sound, but there are not a ton of resources out there that are developmentally sound. And I yeah, love I that it infiltrates every resource that we produce as an organization. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both for sharing. Marco, uh, Ashley, Chef, I want to start diving into, you know, we've, we've teased this enough. I want to start diving into some of this. Drive into the brain. <laughs> dive into the brain matter, uh, <laughs> so to speak. So, so Marco, what is the science and the, the, this research telling us about the teenage brain? And maybe more specifically, uh, what's changing uh, from the adolescent brain or in the adolescent sure. brain? Sure, yeah. Well, let's divide our conversation into two halves. Okay. There's... The second half we'll like talk the about. Brain. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> oh, Dad We're going to talk about this in two hemispheres. Uh, <laughs> so the second half that we'll talk about are some things that are new findings. Okay. Uh, in the last fifteen years, that are that really should have implications on how we do ministry. But the the first half is really not a new finding. It's uh, something that we've understood for a long time, and that's more the developmental reality of the brain in adolescence, and particularly young and middle adolescence. And to boil a whole bunch of, a whole field of study down into just a little nugget, it's the onset of abstract thinking. So preteens and children are limited in their thinking capacity to concrete and black and white mm-hmm. modalities, right? So they can't consider nuance and uh, a paradox and things like that, right? And with puberty comes this, I, I love to kind of imagine it in my weird little <laughs> creative space as God's puberty gift, it's like <laughs> John, Johnny <laughs> turns that 13 and his family throws him a puberty party and under the puberty tree in the corner <laughs> oh are a bunch gosh. of gifts and one of them is beautifully wrapped because it's from God and the little tag says, Dear Johnny, happy puberty, love God. And Somebody inside, make him that t-shirt, please. Inside <laughs> this, this box a new is party. a brand new thinking ability and it's abstract thinking. It's fresh out of God's storehouse and it's cellophane wrapped and Johnny takes it and installs it into his brain. It's like a muscle. It's not actually a muscle, but it's like a muscle that's never been used. And with the onset of puberty comes the capacity for abstract thinking. Now, it's important that we phrase it that way. It's the capacity, but it's like an unused muscle that hasn't been used, and it takes years of use. Uncoordinated, right? It's uncoordinated. So your seventh graders are not going to be great at abstract thinking, but they have the capacity. 
right? And we need to help them mm-hmm. with that. And your girls it's, are probably a little in front the of girls the girls are definitely, yeah. especially as junior hires, yep. definitely ahead yep. of the guys for sure. Now, what is abstract thinking? Yeah, Somebody can, might be wondering. Give us some examples here. <laughs> Again, giant field of study, narrow it down to two factors. There's lots of other factors, but the two biggies for our discussion purposes here today, third-person perspective yeah. and speculation. Mm-hmm. So speculation is considering what if and why questions. Yeah. Boy, do you think that has any implications Goodness for faith gracious. development? Yeah, right. Yeah. And third-person perspective is considering myself from somebody else's point of view, or someone else from somebody else's point of view, or even an idea from somebody else's point of this view. This is the metacognition stuff. Wow, right? that's a big word. Well, it's the ability to <laughs> observe Educator yourself chef thinking. over there. <laughs> well, this is, so when I, when I was first introduced to this, this was the concept that helped me understand middle and high schoolers a ton, and the fact that it's uncoordinated, but... We all the time observe ourselves, observe ourselves thinking. So it's this almost like we're floating above ourselves thinking. And so for the first time, you can kind of sit back and you hear yourself ask questions that scare you. And for a middle schooler, we're somewhere in there. Every kid for their faith has to ask the question, you know, do I believe in mom and dad's God? You know, which I think is huge. I hope I Mm -hmm. I didn't steal. No, no, no. But I think that's a huge question that we can't be afraid of. Because it's Absolutely. a bridge they've got to cross if they're going to have a mature faith as we send them off to Whereas college. to a fourth grader, right. do I believe in mom and dad's God would make no sense. Not at all. Right. right. Because, they don't know well, they can even mom and dad's God is God. Yes. That's, That's there's, the there's no good. separation in that. It's good. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, if you're confused about this, let me give you a, a tangible uh, illustration of yeah. it. If, you, if a, you struggle with abstract thinking, we need a tangible example. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Put a put a seven-year-old girl in front of a mirror and ask her to describe herself, and you will get a rather literal description of what she sees and what she's been told about herself. Okay. Put a 16-year-old girl in front of a mirror mm. and ask her to describe herself, and you get a very different kind of description that is primarily dominated by dis- descriptions of her perception of what she thinks people think of her. Wow. Cu- Colored with some of the other stuff, too. But it's primarily about what she thinks other people think of her. That's speculation and third-person perspective. Now, put that into faith development. Mm -hmm. Because it's giant implications. We could talk about all kinds of stuff, right? Because abstract uh, thinking has... Abstract thinking is the reason why teenagers are going through so many changes. Mm -hmm. It's why they're going through emotional changes. Mm -hmm. It's why they're going through relational changes because friendship changed because of this. It's why uh, uh, they're individuating and separating from their parents in faith and every other area. But let's focus just for a second on faith development before we move on. Because... They have had this inherited faith, whatever it is, Christianity, non-faith, whatever, and now they're moving into a time where they're becoming their own self, and they have these new thinking abilities, and I think of it like this. Little Johnny, who the guy who had the puberty party, right? He's a good kid. He grew up in your church. He's a good kid. Yeah, he's really happy. He got awesome puberty gifts. Uh, So... so, At, um, <laughs> I don't know what that means, and I don't want to yeah. just let that run. Don't think about it too much. Nope. So, so Johnny, uh, as a preteen, <laughs> he built up these walls of conclusion. Preteens are the most concluded people on earth. They have everything resolved. It's simplistic and black and white and even often naive and wrong, but they yeah. think they understand everything, right? And picture it like a giant sea cliff, like the cliffs of Dover. So giant wall made of something porous, like sandstone or chalk, okay? Now, Johnny's going through life with these conclusions that he's confident on and they're working for him. And he moves into now, into his young teen years and questions start to come up based on experience. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that a young or middle teen would just cognitively think, I'm not sure my belief about this thing is good enough anymore. Instead, it comes up because of experience. That you know, I'm not sure my belief is good enough might come up for like a 17 or 22 year old. But if they're 13, it's, I prayed for my grandpa to not die from cancer and he died. Mm-hmm. And I always believed that God would answer my prayers if they weren't selfish and uh, if I really meant it, right? And he died. So now and I don't I know. I haven't meant anything more in my life. I've never meant anything more in my life. And now what do I do about 
my belief about prayer. And that's like a giant wave crashing into that seawall and it starts to erode it. And now Johnny's got three choices. Do I reject this belief about prayer? He doesn't have to reject his whole faith until later on it would have become Swiss cheese because there's hardly anything left, Mm -hmm. right? Do I I reject this bit about prayer and just think, well, that's, I guess that was just a little kid thing, so I don't believe in prayer at all anymore? Mm -hmm. Or do I just say, well, it's good enough because it's all I've got, and that's why our churches are full of moral adults who don't Mm -hmm. have a vibrant faith because they have an eight-year-old's belief system. Right. Or do I find some way to replace it with something better? And doing so for a young teen almost always requires an adult to come alongside them because this is almost always happening at a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. So they need an adult like you and I to come alongside them, help them raise that question to a conscious level, talk about it, process it together, and then find a better replacement. So is that the... More or less, I'm just trying, I'm, you know, if I'm a youth leader or, I mean, I'm personally a small group leader, so I'm trying to think of the implications of this abstract thinking. Is I mean, that the implication there? Some of the abstract, or some of the implications is just making sure that they're understanding things the way that you think you're communicating them, yeah. right? I had a friend who was t- speaking at a camp and was talking about uh, taking a leap of faith, and she realized in the middle of her talk that kids probably thought she literally meant taking a jump, and she decided, I need to concretize this abstract idea. And so she made a quick parallel reference to this this thing you could jump off down by the camp's pond into the pond. The blob or something. Yeah, something (laughs) like that. And half the kids thought it was awesome and half were terrified of it. And she talked about how you don't know what it's like till after you jump off and made this parallel. Afterwards, this little girl came up to her and said, I really want to become a Christian, but I'm afraid to jump off the tower by the pond. (laughs) So (laughs) So, concrete. Right? So (laughs) concrete. Right. And so, I mean, part of the giant implication for us is... Don't assume that they are hearing you the way that you think you're communicating. You have to check for understanding. That's particularly critical with young and middle teens. Comes a little less essential with older teens. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's. It's just that's one part of it. Understand uh, that what their understanding might be different, but it's also think about. Uh, what are the things that we can do to help them exercise their speculation muscle? Look, I mean, if they can get better at speculation and third-person perspective, that helps them grow their faith. Mm -hmm. We want them to do that. So they won't naturally go to speculation, especially younger teens. So we have to take them there because the capacity is there, but not the strength in that area. So we ask speculation questions to get them to go there because that assists them in the development of their faith. Wow. That's awesome. So Kara Powell in Sticky Faith, I think, would put it, uh, I think she put it um, that it's not doubts or questions that hurt a kid's faith. It's unprocessed doubts or questions yeah, that, that's great. that would hurt yep. the faith. That's good. I think that's so, that's good stuff. No, I would say doubts and questions are not only normal, they're essential. Essential. I think that's exactly yeah. right. But going back to your the example about prayer, it's like they have, when something happens or they have an unanswered prayer, it's also, it's not, what I'm hearing is it's not just making sure they understand you know, what you're saying, checking for understanding, but it's also checking in with where they are in their abstract thinking about that prayer and helping them take steps and find the best solutions. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah. And not just solutions, but or, beliefs. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. And if your individual, let's say, pieces of belief, uh, you, you know, the components of your belief, uh, if aspects of that aren't sustainable now that you are 14 or 16 and that you're still holding on to a child's belief, a simplistic black and white concrete belief, then let's find something more robust, abstract, and complex that we can replace that with. Remember, Jesus praised childlike faith, Mm -hmm. not childish faith. Mm. Wow, that's great. Tweet that's that. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> no, that is so good. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> one so, of the one of the things I was thinking about, CJ, with um, one of the options is that God didn't answer my prayer is I still believe in Him, but He just doesn't love me. Oh uh, yeah. And that's something that 
We, I mean, that, that's, you yeah. know, don't assume a kid knows they're awesome. Don't assume a kid, yeah. assume a kid knows they're loved. But that's, that's what I was getting at yeah. is they're having some of those, they're maybe for the first time having some of those abstract thoughts yes. and it's helping them bring those to the surface and then helping them process that and, right. and, and yeah, f- figure some of those things out and not yeah. just let those and lie. you're not the, weird to think that way. Right. That is, a, you know, and, but let's talk about those things and then really Chef, I don't want to assume that you know you're loved. I, will, I want you to know that you're loved. Guys, yeah, this, podcast, this podcast is having yeah. a moment right now. You yeah. too, Ashley, <laughs> CJ, and you But who's loved more is all I want to know. So, Marco, in addition to the abstract thinking that we've been talking about, I hear there's some cutting-edge research that Ashley heard about at the Middle School Ministry Conference a few months ago. Do you mind jumping into some of that kind of more new research? I sure don't mind, because I'm excited <laughs> about this stuff. I love talking about this. I kept getting text messages during this talk, because I wasn't able to be there this time. It was time. so good. I'm yeah. so excited you're here to share with everyone. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to quickly tell you about three newish discoveries. There's hundreds of them, right? But I want to tell you about the three that I think have big implications for youth ministries from the last 15 years. Now, why are there new discoveries suddenly about teenage brains? The reason is that um, in the history of medical science, uh, we did not have a good understanding about child or teenage brains because nobody had ever seen a healthy live brain of somebody that age. They they had looked at them in autopsies and they'd looked at them during brain procedures when they were there for other purposes other than studying them. Right. And it wasn't until the invention of the MRI roughly 15 years ago when we were able to have real-time live non-invasive scans of healthy brains. And mm. so suddenly giant ahas like one aha was prior to the invention of the mri all scientists and doctors thought that the human brain was fully developed on average by about age six and suddenly oops no it's more like 25 ish (laughs) Um, just a little bit just a little bit of a difference (laughs) right and so one of the three things i want to quickly talk about is there are two parts of the brain that are significantly underdeveloped in teenagers they are the prefrontal cortex which is, you don't get hung up on the fancy, heavy $6 word, right? It's, it's the front of your brain right behind your forehead. If you put your hand right now across your forehead. Everybody put your hand on your put forehead. Your ha- I'm doing it right like now. Right where you had a right. soccer ball. Right. <laughs> People right here. Soccer people. Oh, where you had a soccer ball. <laughs> oh. Yes. Yeah. Right, so it's it's right behind. I that appreciate spot. the extra instruction, though. Actually. Yeah, right. that oh, helpful. that that forehead. Thank you. <laughs> that forehead, as opposed to the other one. Um, and uh, so, right behind there is your prefrontal cortex. It's two halves, of course, because the brain has two hemispheres. That part of the brain is underdeveloped. As are your temporal lobes, which are on the side of your head, right behind your temples. If you want to massage those temporarily, <laughs> which is not where you had a soccer ball. This is, place. This, is like getting, this. this is getting stranger. Right? Yes, I'm rubbing the sides of my head right now. Now. Prefrontal cortex, responsible for some pretty important stuff. It's the brain's CEO or the executive office, responsible for things like impulse control, prioritization, uh, wisdom, decision-making. I mean, these are empathy. These are really, really important things. They're what separate us from other animals. But the reality is teenagers struggle with this because they are they have an underdeveloped uh, prefrontal cortex. Now, listen, back at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about, do you see teenagers as a problem to be solved or as a wonder to behold? Mm-hmm. If you see them as a problem to be solved and you find, oh, they have an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex, it's hard for men to make good decisions or control their impulses or evaluate risk. Uh, then you say, see man. what we always knew. Teenagers are broken. Oh, we should put them in a box and treat them as children, a process called infantilization, Hmm. and protect them because really they're incapable. And that's why adolescence is now a 20-year journey because we as a culture have treated them for children for so long, removed responsibility and expectation, and uh, they don't know how to become adults, right? Hmm. So the other opportunity is to say, what if we see this underdevelopment of the prefrontal cortex as a wonder to behold, yeah. Ooh, now things get good. Well, now Ooh. you understand that they can't be fixed at, you know, age 12, 13, 14, But 15. they can be grown or developed. Yeah, right? even more. It's what is the gift of God's creation that these wonderful people might bring our churches? Okay, instead of 
they are not good at evaluating risk. How about if we think of that as they're awesome at taking risks right? that well, we wouldn't yeah. take? Our churches need that. Instead of they're, um, they're, um, they take way too many risks and they're, um, and they're not good at decision-making and they're emotionally volatile, how about if we think of that as this reality that they're passionate Right. Mm-hmm. So instead of they're broken, no, they are great at taking risks and they're given to passion. Our churches need that. This is, I would suggest, part of God's design for the body of Christ expressed in the church. We need teenagers. Wow. So mm-hmm. that's prefrontal cortex. By the way, I mentioned temporal lobes. That's processing emotions. It's also really difficult. So have some patience. Yeah. For particularly your guys, the the temporal lobes are really underdeveloped in boys, more so than in girls. Uh, For life or... (laughs) Hey, now. They need us to be their surrogate temporal lobes. They need us to help them understand and process (laughs) emotions, okay? That's number one of the new findings. Second one I want to talk about briefly. Ready for some really big words? Neuron proliferation and winnowing. That sounds like crazy stuff. after me. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to explain it really quickly. Here's the deal. Uh, MRIs taught us this. In the two years leading up to the onset of puberty, the brain goes into a growth frenzy and grows millions of additional neurons. Now, the brain has billions of neurons in it, but during that two years prior to puberty, in the preteen years, millions of additional neurons get grown. Neurons are the electrical wiring of the brain. It's how information moves around. Bundled together, we refer to them as neural pathways. Okay, It's the information superhighways of the brain. At puberty, a toggle switch is tripped, and the process reverses itself. That's the proliferation up to puberty, the winnowing after Hmm. puberty. And in the two to four years following the onset of puberty, young and middle teen years, millions of neurons are culled away, cut away, eliminated, not just put into... Yes, exactly. It's not just put into dormancy where they could be revived later. They're actually eliminated. They're gone. The, The fascinating thing is how they're eliminated. One of the lead researchers in adolescent brain development works at National Institutes of Health. He calls it a use it or lose it principle. Mm -hmm. Those neurons and neural pathways that are dominantly used in the young and middle teen years get to stay in play for the rest of life, and those that are not get cut away. This is why somebody who immigrates to a new country prior to about 14 years old picks up the accent of the new place they move. Oh, wow. But if they move after about 14, they retain Stuck. the accent of their mm, country or, wow. or region or whatever wow. of origin, right? That's why it's because of this change. If you want to be a brilliant soccer player, you better be actively playing soccer during your young teen years. Not because there aren't millions of other factors of training and body and other stuff, but you have to develop the mental capacities for processing how to be a good soccer player. Now, all of this question is much more than a scientific neato thing. It's a giant question of stewardship for us in youth ministry. Mm. How do we want to steward the opportunity we have to be involved in shaping teenage brains for a lifetime of vibrant faith? And I would suggest to you, if your focus is cramming young teens' brains full of correct answers, you are wiring their brains to only be able to repeat back information that they've been fed. Instead... What if we prioritized, what if we stewarded this opportunity by thinking, how can we help them in their young and middle teen years develop the process of responding to tough questions and seeking truth Mm. for themselves and a whole bunch of other things like that? That will set them up for a lifetime of faith. So instead of giving them just, just information and loads of information, basically helping them Learn to do that. Learn to learn their lives. Yeah, learn to learn to see Jesus. Learn to understand uh, how to interpret an experience of Jesus. Learn how to discern so many of these other things like this. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So, can you give us an example of what that that looks like? As far as you said, the neuron proliferation and winnowing, all that kind of stuff. But it really gets down to 
you know, helping them develop the process of responding to tough questions instead of just finding correct answers or... Well, it's just the question is how you use your brain in your young teen years predicts how you will use it for the rest of life. And yes, we can learn new things, but it becomes more difficult to learn new things. And so how we use our brain in the practice of faith during the young mm-hmm. teen years, that's what gets hardwired. We've mm-hmm. got to look at the brain more than just a storage yeah. place because yes. it's not just information that's up there. It's right. skill sets and how you think and all that. Yes. And there's stuff. like a certain time frame yeah. where it, it's it is elevated. Our stewardship. Yeah. Here's a simple, let me boil it down into this simple comparison, CJ. Yeah. Would you rather in the young teen years have teenagers learn the right belief on a certain thing or how to process doubt about a certain thing? I would suggest how to process doubt about a certain thing has an extremely exponentially higher value than how to learn the right answer about a thing during those years. I'm not, I'm not anti-right answer. Yeah, right. I, I'm all for right answers, right? Yeah. It's just what's the priority in the young and middle teen years, and it has to be about more about processes than data storage. All right, I'm going to queue up on a question I know you are just going to destroy. You ready? I'm ready. I'm, I'm a high school pastor who um, has middle school as part of my responsibility, and um, I don't love it, so I just kind of put them on a shelf and wait till they get to high school. Yeah, that's like a lot of high school pastors. <laughs> right. Well, right? that's the, that's the, welcome to the church. I, right? I, I understand it. So I don't. I am not that person, but I no, understand. Well, I know it. you love middle school, so we can't do that. Is my point? I guess. You know what? If you wait until they're about sixteen, you've waited too long. It's a, yeah. You might as well just. I, I'm gonna sl- use slight hyperbole, which I've been known to do in my life. <laughs> which i've never done before right. if you wait till they're 16 if you wait till they're in high school yes god can still do stuff no question what a waste i mean i it's just too late mm-hmm. um why wouldn't we want to build on something rather than starting from scratch mm-hmm. right the, the challenge mean, is this is just so much, um, it's difficult to point to, or it's difficult to measure, you know, that their ability to process as opposed well, you to can't just measure. Right. Yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah. And it's the reality is with hole. so many changes in culture and how adolescence has pushed younger and younger, both physiologically and culturally, right. um, junior high is the make or break time, man. By the time they're in high school, they've already made major decisions about who they are. And it's really the only the ki- only the kind of thing, or not maybe not only, but they really best learn some of those things in one on one relationship with someone that can help them process or find some of the the best conclusions, as opposed to a lot of correct answers you can teach from a stage. A lot of the mm-hmm. processes that you're talking about happens in the context of a small group. Would you agree with that, Marco, or no? Yes. Uh- I would say in small, let's say in smaller settings, because I don't want people to get locked into the thinking that it has to be a small group program. Fair. Right? Mm -hmm. Or just a Mm one-on-one. But it does happen in dialogue. So where's the context where dialogue happens? Uh, Speaking of that, I mean, there's been great research. This is not necessarily brain development stuff, but there's been great research in the last 10 years primarily led by Amanda Drury, who's got a PhD from Princeton and teaches at Indiana Wesleyan now, that very conclusively proves we've got to get teenagers verbalizing what they believe. It's more important uh, for their long-term faith development than them getting everything right at this point. So much so that I've taken to saying for junior hires, the verbalization of belief is more important than the accuracy of the belief. That's great. You know what's interesting is one of the most common questions we get about the XP3 curriculum, specifically about the small group guides we provide, are the kinds of questions we ask in small group. We have a lot of people who ask, like, why don't you ask questions about specific scripture verses? Or why don't you have recall questions about what they just learned from the stage? And um, our answer always is exactly what you just said, Marco, is how do we help them apply it? How do we help Mm. them engage where they can express doubt and and questions and they can share stories and they can share their opinions on something or form their opinions on something. 
So really, our, our focus in the XP3 curriculum during small group time is exactly that, mm. is how do we help them do something with what they just learned so they don't lose the information? Awesome. Okay, the new thing. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this. That That is the best transition we've <laughs> ever had on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get to the most important, right? Yeah. The newest stuff. Oh, gosh. This we... is the stuff I was texting you this about right is... now. Right. Drum right. roll. Go okay. for it. Okay. So this is my new discovery. That doesn't mean that it is. No, it's fairly new discovery. Okay. Sometime in the last two years. Um, so we talked about the prefrontal cortex, right? That's this part in the front of your brains where you hit soccer balls. Um, <laughs> exactly. With, or something like that. I did a lot during my adolescence, okay. people. I did not. Mm, <laughs> yes. Um, so that's the front. And that's the, remember, that's logic and rational thought. Now, there's another part of the brain that you may have heard of. It's called the amygdala. Okay. Mm-hmm. A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A. Amygdala. And it's a little tiny almond-shaped uh, thing down at the base of your um, brain, right by the brain stem. Okay. And the amygdala literally looks about like an almond in size and shape. The amygdala is the fear center of your brain. And it's like a super basic primitive part of your brain. And when it fires up and you're super afraid and being controlled by fear, it overrides your prefrontal cortex and you can't think logically. That makes sense to us, right? We've all experienced that. I know I shouldn't be afraid of the sound in the other room, but I just can't seem to get past it because I'm experiencing this great fear. That's because your amygdala is overriding your prefrontal cortex. Now, I kind of knew both of those. The new part that I've just learned about is called the anterior cingulate. Anterior, as opposed to posterior, which means behind, anterior means forward. And the anterior cingulate is right behind the prefrontal cortex, and it acts as a buffer between the two, almost like a fulcrum. If you've got like a teeter-totter or a seesaw, depending on what part of the country you grew up in, you got fear <laughs> on one side, logic on the other side. The, the, the little teeter-totter part in the middle is the anterior cingulate, offering balance between those two. But here's where the new discoveries about this thing really get uh have giant implications for uh faith development um so the anterior cingulate when it's highly developed and functioning well is what allows us to understand a god who is compassionate and personal if you have let me say it again if you have a developed anterior cingulate it allows you to understand god as compassionate and personal and then to start to have compassion on individual other people because you've also exercised the ability to understand other, okay? Now, take those three for a second. Which of those is highly developed for you has giant implications for what your faith is like? If you have a faith ruled by your amygdala, it will be a fear-based faith, probably Mm. given to legalism, trying to appease a wrathful and angry God. Right. If you have a faith that is dominated by your prefrontal cortex, then you have a logical, rational faith or a lack of it. A lot of atheists would have a faith that is primarily mm-hmm. ruled by their pre- prefrontal sense. cortex. Right. If you want a thriving, vibrant faith that understands a God who knows me and loves me and wants my best Mm -hmm. and a faith that fuels me to notice other people's needs, you need a highly developed anterior cingulate. Now, how do we get it? (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is so cool, you guys. (laughs) So there's these two leading neurologists. They're not Christians. One's a naturalist, which is a nice way of saying atheist, but he doesn't like that word. And the (laughs) other is spiritual. But okay. he said he decidedly says in his writings that he wouldn't call himself a Christian. To me, that gives credibility to this because they're not Christians propagating Christianity, mm. but they're so pro-Christianity, pro-faith, let's say. Okay. The number one way to grow the anterior cingulate, prayer and meditation. Wow. One of the many studies they did, they took a controlled group of people who'd never experienced any prayer meditation, got them to agree to eight to 10 minutes a day, six days a week, and found that within two months, there was a 50% increase in the functionality of the interior cingulate. And that that change was a permanent change. That after two months, those people reported back having a completely different understanding of God, 
and of noticing other people's needs, seeing themselves in a different light in response to who God is, as well as compassion toward you said other people. Eight to ten minutes a day. Eight to ten minutes two, a day for but, two months. But it has to be daily. This is critical because so much of our practice of youth ministry is we think, well, if we have kids gather together twice a week and we do these things, that's great. Yeah, sure, it is great, but it doesn't impact the anterior cingulate. It has mm. to be daily. So we should pray without. Ceasing, right? Maybe, no, yeah. really. This well, is no. how. Ber- this is what was my point of the yeah. talk. Thanks for stealing my Sorry. thunder, Chef. Well, this is my uh, such the a point teacher. of my talk at the conference that Ashley was referring to. Is that what I was when I was reading about this? I was realizing we've all told our 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 teenagers so many times. Yes, prayer changes God, but you need to understand that prayer changes you. This is how prayer changes us, wow. quite literally. Now, wait, there's more. <laughs> there's Ginsu knives. No. <laughs> the second biggest way to impact the anterior cingulate, and it's a big drop from first to second, but it's uh, faith-based singing. <laughs> really? Yeah. I didn't so, see that coming. So, and and they, the researchers said you can't just think about a song or hear a song. You actually have to intone it. Um, so you have to actually verbalize it and sing. Can't just mouth the words. like. And it's not just singing any song. It has to be kind of meditative, singing, faith-based song. What about Christian rap? <laughs> if it, that's faith-based that singing, singing to you. I think. I'm just, okay, <laughs> I go ahead. Know. No, I didn't no it has to off, have. They derailed us. I've got an eight-year-old who's a rapper. For so. this part, it has to actually have some uh, like tonal. Yeah. Implication, yeah. uh, some tonal stuff. I, mean, I was kind of joking, but I was actually. Kinda I know. So listen, listen. <laughs> Is that the same? It, let me wrap this part up. If we, if you and I, let's start there, would commit to ten minutes a day, six days a week, of meditating on the goodness of God or a scripture verse or something like that, and end that time by singing a Chris Tomlin song. Let's go with Chris Tomlin. Yeah. Sure, that's okay. the first name that came sure. to my mind. Right. And that by singing oceans. Oh, it's too long. <laughs> Better is one day. You, by doing that, play an active role in, in framing and building the capacity of your brain to have a vibrant Christian life. Wow. Now, the youth ministry question. So shouldn't that be our top priority in youth mm. ministry? We do all these other good and important things, and we do all kinds of things that aren't that good and important. But if that sets somebody up for a lifetime of thriving faith, shouldn't somehow figuring out how we can coach teenagers toward the end of a daily practice of meditation and singing, what could be more important? I think you and I need to become anterior cingulate superheroes and help teenagers <laughs> develop that part of our brain and lead the way by doing it ourselves too. Wow. Amen. There yeah. it is. It's almost like we focus so much on the part of the brain that is focused on the correct answers and all of that kind of a thing or the what you know the neuron proliferation that you were talking about and we neglect the anterior cingulate that really builds and helps drive the core yeah. of our faith. Yeah. I'm sitting here, and I know this is the second time I've heard you talk about it, Marco, but I feel like super overwhelmed in the best kind of way because you like get just a glimpse into who God is mm. and like how He created us. Yeah, this isn't like and, we don't have to like think of this as like just natural stuff that isn't of God. God made this yeah, stuff. It's so awesome, yeah. and to see how like how how He had planned for it all to work together. Yeah. Is really cool. Super, super cool. It, it, but if we understand what what I'm getting out of this is you're t- you taking us through a bunch of different aspects of the brain. If we can get into the process of developing and responding to the tough questions instead of just finding the correct answers, and if we can start investing in the interior cingulate instead of just ignoring it and say, "Hey, I hope you're praying," you know, "I hope you're praying," or you know, whatever, then all of a sudden now we have a more comprehensive student ministry or a comprehensive faith building environment. Was that does that make sense? I know yeah, I'm kind of nice all over recap. the place. No, that's good. I mean to kind of talk about what we've talked about, help kids, help teenagers speculate and exercise their third person perspective, right? That exercising of their abstract thinking capacity that's a little bit dormant mm-hmm. uh, that will uh, fast forward their faith development. Yeah. Right? And then things like help them process uh, doubts and questions yeah. and figure out how to seek 
truth themselves. That's connects with this and uh, with this um, neuron proliferation and winnowing, right. right? Stuff that we talked about. Um, understand their need for their natural God-given proclivity for passion and risk-taking. And how can we channel that in a way that serves their best interests, serves the kingdom, serves our churches? Well, rather than seeing them as broken and incapable. And that's why understanding the teenage brain, the adolescent brain, is so important because it matters and Mm -hmm. because we can do something about it and we can take advantage of the season or the phase that they're in. Marco, thank you so much for you bet. joining us for this conversation. That was, it was a little over my head, unintended. <laughs> you did. Because I thought about that a second ago. Um, but that was really, really great. And if you want to find out more about uh, some of this information, Marco, can you tell us if you've written some of this down or the best book to check out uh, if we want to learn more about some of this brain yeah, I've science? I've written about adolescent brain development in a few books. Uh, I wrote a book called Middle School Ministry with uh, Scott Rubin, and the first half of that book covers this ground. And then I repurposed that for parents. It's called Understanding Your Young Teen that covers uh, adolescent brain development, specifically junior hires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I wrote a, a book called um, A Parent's Guide to Understanding Teenage Brains okay. that covers this in a super short amount of space. And then one more called A Volunteer Youth Worker's Guide to Understanding Today's Teenagers. So That's awesome. all those. That's more the abstract thinking and its implications. Right. Yeah. Uh, I will say, if you're fascinated by the anterior cingulate stuff, the book you need to read is called How God Changes Your Brain. Wow. Okay. Well, we are going to bundle all those books that you just mentioned. We'll have them in the show notes, but we are going to do a little uh, giveaway, a little contest on our XP3 students Instagram. So if you want to check out all of those books, you can get links to them in the show notes. But if you want to get copies of all of those for free, go ahead and follow us on Instagram at XP3 students, and you'll get all the details on how you can win uh, that bundle of books. And for more from Marco, you can check out theyouthcartel.com or visit his website, whyismarco.com. Marco, W-H-Y, whyismarco.com. That's his blog, and you can get links to all of his social media there. Well, thank you three for joining us for this conversation, and thank you for listening to the Rethinking Youth Ministry podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast through your Apple Podcasts app. And while you're there, we would love for you to leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing, and let us know what we can do to make this podcast better. And finally, for more great resources, for a link to all of the books that Marco mentioned, uh, visit our website, rethinkingym.org. That's where you'll find all of this stuff nice and neatly compiled for you. And until next time, I'm CJ. I'm Ashley. I'm Chef. I'm Marco. And thank you for listening.